Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Welcome to another edition of Off Camera, the show where I get to talk to iconic, creative, curious artists and find out how they got that way. And in this episode, I sit down with comedian, actress, writer, director, creator, and mom, Andrea Savage. If you haven't seen Andrea Savage's comedy series, I'm sorry. Well, you should. Just be prepared to laugh your ass off. As the creator, writer, and star of the series, Andrea does it all, which makes sense since the show is based on her own experiences being a comedian, wife, and mom. But it is also a show about us. Andrea has found the universal truths of being a parent while being a working artist, and her observational powers reveal the absurdity and pathos in our own lives. For years, Andrea was stuck in development hell. She had a stable acting career with roles in Step Brothers, Episodes, and Veep. But true to her improv and Groundlings background, Andrea wanted to write and create as well. She was pumping out pilot scripts, selling them, but they weren't getting made. As she says, it was heartbreak after heartbreak of putting your all into a project, getting good notes, and then nothing. It was always the bridesmaid, never the bride. When Andrea turned 40, the self-described successful failure decided to change her approach with I'm Sorry. She put together a crew, and with some help from her talented friends Judy Creer and Jason Mansukas, she films her own pilot presentation. Andrea figured out that she needed to show her vision, because her story was nuanced and personal, not full of big jokes that jumped off the page. The approach worked like gangbusters, and her presentation became the first episode of the show, and established her as a creator, showrunner, director, and a force to be reckoned with. As she says, I literally just willed it to happen. Andrea joins off-camera to talk about why her writer's room is better than therapy, why her lack of darkness makes her question her comedy bona fides, and about her dedication to being a joke shepherd. So pull up a chair and listen in. Hi, Andrea. Hi, Sam. Thanks for doing this. I couldn't be more delighted to be here. Well, I'm delighted to have you here because I love your show. Thank you. And it's called I'm Sorry. Yep. And I love it because I connect with it so much. Not only your humor, which is inappropriate and crass. How and, dare you? And yet, like, so spot on. And, <laughs> but also, I think... To have had kids in elementary school to run the gauntlet of that whole deal of making new friends mm-hmm. because you're you're all of a sudden back in school yourself as yeah. a parent. And your show explores so many of those things so well. I think I connect with it so much because it's true. And when comedy really hits you, it's because it's like, oh, that, that, I've wanted to say that in that way forever. And it's like, you know me. And that's the best humor, I think. Thank you. I really appreciate that because um, we, my, my co-showrunner, Joey Slam and I, we work so hard to make sure every drop of the show is authentic and that every single thing on the show stems from either my real story or her real story or someone in our writer's room. Literally every conversation between Andrea and Mike in the bedroom Everything stems from something real. Because I think parenthood and all this stuff has been mined a lot. Yeah. But it's often the harried wife and the husband who can't get the sex that he wants. And then the precocious kids and the crappy parents at the school. And we were like, those are the easy tropes tropes to go into. How about actually have it be nuanced? And we really try very hard to not fall into any of those tropes. And yet... It's a situational comedy in mm-hmm. the sense that it's episodic. It's and episodic. It's, it's not a dramedy at all. And mm-hmm. yet 
there are moments that feel very, they're real enough that there's more than comedy going on. I think if it was just to land the joke, I wouldn't connect as much. So I, I feel like there's more pathos in there than a normal comedy. Uh, again, I mean, I'll say it again, thank you. Um, I feel like you're speaking my language. Um, no, we really, you know, try to, because we make every episode actually about dealing with aging parents, where they're not taking care of you anymore, you're not taking care of them, what is that relationship? Right. Keeping a long-term marriage alive, friends who are getting divorced, friends who are not married yet and are starting to get a little weird, your daughter being racist and like saying things that are crazy. You know, whatever it is, we wanna make sure it's actually about something that's true in people's 30s and 40s, and we never do anything just for the joke. If it is just for the joke, I cut it. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And we should say, it's on True TV. It's on it's True TV. coming back for the third season. You've just finished the second season, which yep. is now on Netflix. Yep. The, that's where I found the first season was on Netflix. A and lot of people believe it is a Netflix show. Right, yeah. right. Well, I wanted to ask you how you take your personal experiences mm -hmm. and turn them into episodes. Like, when you have a certain interaction or whatever in your real life that happens to you, what's your process for well, examining I that? Jot that down Okay, quickly. so you're a, you're a jotter. I'm a jotter. Okay. Season one, I came in with, I think it was like 40 stories that I basically knew I wanted to tell that were stories like um, the porn star who was in our class. Right. And that was real. I well, also if got. You, if your kids are at school in the Valley, that's going to happen. It's going to happen. But what was weird is I was the only one who knew what her former profession was for a year and a half. And I became legitimately obsessed with her butthole. But not <laughs> judging her and her thing. I just was like, she was prolific. I Googled her. Right. And she was prolific. You spent some time. I spent some time. I did my work. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm no you know, one has nothing ever if said not prepared. You do not prep. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and she was prolific. And also, this was the thing that just kept me up at night. She had a handicap placard on her car. And though <laughs> that kept me wondering, because she's fully, seems like a fully able-bodied person. Very uh, able-bodied. Very able-bodied from the yeah. videos that I had seen. You've seen all of her body. Yes. It's able. I, and it was able. Um, but it was, I, I just, I kept it to myself because I was like, I don't care what this woman's done and she seems like a good mom and whatever. Um, but I did, you know, she did wear like white pants to some school thing. And I was like, well, that's bold from what I've seen of her work and the <laughs> handicap placard combo in my head of going, that's where I feel like maybe the disability, that area is where it must manifest. <laughs> right. So things like that. And then my daughter had gone through a very upsetting, truly upsetting period where she was saying some racist things. And it really was that you can know how to wean your baby from a you know, the breast to a bottle or bottles of food. Nobody's telling you how to navigate when your daughter goes, Mommy, see this color skin? This is the color skin I like. And did that happen as mm -hmm. well? That was like a legitimate quote when she was young. And the navigating, and then we fictionalized some of the navigating sure. from there. But I really take the real stories and all the characters on my show are based from real people in my life, especially my mom and dad. And then second season, we had to shift a little because I'd use so many of my own stories. Right. So I would say then it was 60% my stories and then putting in writer's room stories thematically that go together. But we never go, what would be funny if Andrea was, I don't know, stuck in an airport? We always go, we room write everything and we pitch stories. What does room write mean? 
So nobody ever goes, hey, Andrea, I'd love, uh, I've got this idea of you in an airport, and I go, okay, that sounds good. You go write it, bring me a draft, and I'll peruse through it and see where we go. What we do is the first three weeks or so, we just pitch, what's your funniest story? What's a fight you just got in with your spouse? What's a weird event that just happened? Any topic, and then I come in, and Joey comes in with some prompts of like, What's something with a friendship that has faded and what do you do? Who's got something in that realm? So we do that for a while. Then Joey and I really go, that's a really funny set piece. This is the real pathos about why this story is a something that's relatable. Right. An example of that is in season two, there's an episode, which is very hard to write Andrea and Mike episodes where they're at odds because... Andrea and Mike they have, a good relationship. have a great relationship. Yeah. And that was one of my number one things going to the show. I was like, we're going to show people who actually have been together a while, who still are hot for each other, still find each other funny. Everything's not perfect, but they enjoy being married to each other. I like that because, it's again, it's not the trope of, oh, she's a, she's a comedian and she's a mom, so where's the conflict? Well, it'll be with her husband. Yeah. Yeah. It's not Lucy and Desi. Right. So that... Those episodes tend to be a little tricky to write for Andrea and Mike having conflict. So we had an episode sort of about that. And then there was this crazy story that one of our writers had of being at a party where someone was playing charades, slammed into a door as they like hit a door and then bled so incredibly profusely and violently that nobody knew what to do. And so we took that thing and we put it at a thing at Mike's work. Um, where uh, out of nowhere, yeah. this guy's telling a story, and then suddenly his head is bleeding. Yeah. And then Mike and Andrea both kind of do it as something together to get in there with, which was slightly based on a story of Joey Slayman and her husband who saw a car accident. And they both like ran out of the car and like helped, and they both felt very close to each other. And it reminded them why they were it reminded close them the why we were So that's a good example of one of the harder, like sort of more complicated how we got in there yeah. for a story. Hey folks, let's take a little break from the conversation so I can tell you about this week's sponsor, ARC. You brush your teeth every day. You even floss, sometimes. But did you know there's another level of oral care? With ARC, you can remove stains that lie beneath the surface of your smile. ARC is a new way to achieve professional-level teeth whitening at home for just 30 minutes a day. And each ARC treatment includes dentist-approved enamel-safe whitening strips that adhere to your upper and lower teeth, along with ARC Blue Light technology. The blue light mouthpiece arcs around your entire mouth, delivering targeted blue light energy to help weaken, set in stains below the enamel surface, making your treatment more effective than strips alone. Arc can help you reveal a smile that's 50 times whiter than a leading whitening toothpaste, and they offer satisfaction guaranteed. I just gotta say, isn't technology amazing? I feel like the whole teeth whitening thing has come so far since the beginning, and now it's just super easy. This is a small box, you put the thing in, 30 minutes later, your teeth are whiter. It's kind of one of those, what do you have to lose? You don't want to walk around with yellow teeth, and it's super easy, it's super affordable, it's kind of just the perfect solution. And to help our listeners get a whiter, brighter smile, Arc is offering $15 off your purchase of a blue light kit when you visit arcsmile.com and you use the promo code CAMERA at checkout. So go to arcsmile.com, use the promo code CAMERA for $15 off your blue light whitening kit. 
That's ARCSmile.com, promo code CAMERA. Now back to the show. When you're writing a show, you're starring in the show, it's based on your life and your experiences. How do you involve the writer's room? And how do you, and not only that, but once you involve them and they're good, how do you maintain the original voice of the show? That's the room writing part. So basically we get all our stories and then we write all the dialogue together. Nobody ever goes off and writes a script. So we write like 12 page outlines as a group. So nothing's getting approved. The problem is sometimes on other shows, they go off and write a script and then it can come back. And then the person, if you're like me, you read it and you're like, page one, I I would have never approached and said that to that person. And then it's work that's been done for nothing. Right. But it really is a group effort. And that outline has almost all the first pass dialogue. We will get into this later. And I just want a short answer now. But after doing so much solo writing, is it a joy to write in a room like that? Yes. I would imagine. You wanted a short answer, and I'm not saying anything more than one word. Okay. Well, we'll, we're (laughs) going to put that in our... uh, our little file box, and we're going to yes, pull that out it later. Because really I'm fascinated by your whole history, and I want to get there. Um, but I want to ask you also about yeah. when you write. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think of this a lot. I think of comedians as sort of like a higher level socially or a higher level psychologically than a lot of other human beings. Because the nature of the job is to have to think about human behavior and to look at it from all sides. Mm -hmm. They get a lot of practice at really looking at what motivates human behavior. And and I'm curious if that even goes a step further with your show because you have to look specifically at your own life and your own behavior during the time when it's going on. So I'm wondering if there's a way to give me an example of how this show has made you become more self-aware or if there's a therapy portion to it. I will, you've hit the nail on the head. Everyone who's been in our writer's room, at the end of it, including me and including Joey, goes, my marriage is so much healthier now. And everyone's like, I feel like I just had therapy for five months. Really? Because everyone shares, like, God, I got in this fight, whatever, like, kind of embarrassed. And maybe they know that they sounded petty or they whatever. And then someone else in the room was like, I had that exact same conversation. And you hear that everyone does it. And you do sit there. I 100% sit there with my husband, thinking about my husband. I'm like... I got to treat him better. You know what I mean? Like, I got to give him more of my While time. While you're in the writer's room, While you're having a Chinese chicken salad. Yeah. <laughs> but it does make me, it, it does bring out your flaws and you do sort of examine them and then you do see how other people had that similar situation and maybe worked through it. And the men especially are like, this has been the best growing therapy experience for me. My marriage is like this now. How does your writer's room differ from writer's rooms that you've been involved in as an employee in the past? Well, it's interesting. I've only been in one other writer's room because I never staffed. I was creating my own shows. I was a writer-producer on a show called Dog Bites Man, but I was also starring on the show. And sort of, it was a very um, not traditional writer's room as well. And it was sort of all room written and that kind of thing. I've never staffed in an actual, like, regular writer's room. Because I came more so from the acting producer. So you got to make it up from, yeah. from scratch. You, yeah. didn't, you didn't have anything to rebel against or to copy. Totally. And then Joey Slayman, who I hired after the pilot, she had, you know, that was her background to co-showrun with me. And she was the one that was like, it's not going to behoove us to have anyone walk away and just write a script. Because 
it's your voice. You're going to need to end up right. putting it through your filter constantly. And at the end of the day, Joey and I end up writing a lot of it. But from what I understand, it's very non-traditional comparatively. So right before we started taping, we mm-hmm. made a joke that we don't have <laughs> HR on this show. Mm-hmm. And this thing you describe where you go home and get into conversations you wouldn't normally have, and, and this is the experience in your yeah. writer's room. I'm wondering what kind of environment that fosters where you know it's safe in a way. Like, I'm sort of envious of the clubhouse that you have when you have a writer's room, but I also think there's this other really healthy level of getting into conversations that you couldn't have in any Human other Human interactions yeah. that you can't have, especially in this day and age, right. in a lot of places. And how does that, Nothing's how does that off come limits. up? Right. You keep, well, it's very small. Mm-hmm. There's only a handful of us. Do you guys have a secret code or credo? We're v- well, Joey and I are extremely careful of who we hire. We ask around a lot about how they are. We make a lot of speeches of, guys, this is very private. We all know a lot of the same people, and this has right. to be extremely private. And I know you're going to go home and you're going to want to divulge it or you're going to have drinks with your friends. But what, you can't. Think of somebody in the room doing that about one of your stories and just remember that before you say anything because it will be tempting to do it. And it's something so beautiful about that. I, and I don't think this is most writers' rooms. It's really this weird little thing that we've created. And I know as you know, the showrunner leading the room, especially when people pitch jokes and when we're doing that kind of stuff, I have to work really hard to make sure that I keep everyone's confidence up. And that nobody's starting to be like, oh, she didn't like any of my stuff, and now I feel stupid, and I don't want to share anything. Because I know how vulnerable it is to be opening up yourself and, like, your worst things about yourself and your family and all this. And then just start to lose that self-confidence and that to waver. So I always want everyone to feel like, okay, maybe that didn't go that direction, but that was actually valuable, and maybe let's go a different direction. Like, there's no yelling. There's no... Why do you think you are sensitive to that? Because I know what it's like to be in a room where you don't feel supported or listened to and your confidence starts to crumble. Like, I feel like in acting jobs, there have been times where you show up and for whatever reason, what you thought you were supposed to do and what the director is thinking they're supposed to do, you can tell they're not getting what they want, but you don't understand what they want. You Maybe you're getting mixed messages also from different people saying this. And suddenly you're just like, I know this isn't going well, but I can't fix it. And now I'm losing my confidence in my ability to just know what I know to do. And I felt it and I've seen it happen on sets. Yeah. And it's a scary feeling. And I don't want anyone in my room to feel that because I care about them. And also it's not helpful for us if somebody shuts down. So it is this really sort of... We've been very lucky that we've just hire really sensitive, funny people who are just inherently nice people. I feel like at the same time that you could find yourself in good hands no matter what you shared, it would also probably hold a mirror up to things that you didn't want to face on your own. Like, were there certain shortcomings about yourself that had to sort of come to light to be able to do this? In comedy, I mean, you have to not be interested in looking cool. I mean, you can't think you're perfect. <laughs> like, those will kill comedy. So inherently, you have to be like, what are my flaws? And, you know, I think we use that for comedic effect. And some things, one thing is I want life to be fair. Uh-huh. And it makes me furious when things aren't fair. 
everything from when the anal porn star, when someone outed her, someone else outed her, I got furious on her behalf and was just like, how dare you? That's not fair. This woman's pulled her life together. Who are you? And you do it anonymously? So if, you know, or if somebody misunderstands, like, you know, even that dance class, which this is in the, I'm going back to the pilot, yeah. was a fight I got in in a real dance class when this woman yelled at me about putting the air on, was horrible to me and swearing at me. And then I snapped in some way and I walked up to the front of the class of people I did not know and was like, well, I, it seems we have a little bit of an air conditioning situation. Like I wanted the air on and this woman told me to go fuck myself. And she, and she was like, no, I didn't, no, I didn't, no, I didn't. And I was like, oh my God, yes, you did. And no one else heard it. And no one stood up for me. And I was like, but you don't understand. Like so I you saw did all nicely. Of that. Yes. All of that. Yes. And it's, I will say I have had to work on going even when negotiating or dealing with my network or that kind of thing, I will get very righteous about fairness and it's not healthy for me. It's not great. And I have to figure out how to live in a world that isn't fair. Or when somebody is saying something about you and you don't have any ability to speak your version of it because no one's giving you that, but you know there's a narrative happening that you can't get in and defend makes me crazy. Well, it makes sense why you have your own show. <laughs> yeah, so I like, can set it our straight. That's right. Set the record straight. Maybe that is the um, real reason you have the show, is that all the injustices can be <laughs> re-narrativized. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I admit, like, I don't, I'm not a confrontational person. The character's much more, gets in much more issues than I do. But I do have a thing where if somebody pushes back in certain ways, I do snap. Really? Mm -hmm. Like if somebody, that one time, parking space, where I literally just snapped and trapped the person. <laughs> it's not great. Now that happened on your show uh -huh. too, where, where you blocked. I, pulled, their, I blocked them in. That was based their, and on. And then they climbed out the passenger side That door. is a true story. Really? Mm -hmm. It was on Ventura Boulevard in Studio City. So I feel like the valley is just a, a fertile <laughs> ground for these things to happen. And it was so egregious the way the person did it. And then they just wouldn't look at me. And I was like, I'm right here and you can't open your door. But to your effect of just relationship stuff with my husband in terms of like stuff I'm not giving him, like, you know, or things that I'm doing that are like, yeah, you know what? That isn't cool. I need to be more aware of that or whatever it is. It really does. There's a therapy aspect to it. A hundred percent. Hey folks, I just want to take a moment to tell you about this week's sponsor, BetterHelp. Well, what is BetterHelp? Have you ever been to therapy? Well, I sure have, and it's helped me immensely throughout my career, in my personal life, in sort of achieving things I wanted to achieve and getting through some obstacles. And I think if you're an artist, knowing yourself, knowing what you struggle with, and knowing that you're not alone is a huge part of being successful. And I think that everybody has certain obstacles in their life that is preventing them from feeling happy or from achieving your goals. So if you are one of those people, which I believe we all are, BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, family conflicts, self-esteem. I mean, basically being human. <laughs> and here's the great thing about BetterHelp. You can connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. And anything you share is confidential. And it's so convenient. 
I mean, one of the hardest things to do is to find a therapist that fits with you. And that can be a disheartening process that maybe stops a lot of people from getting the help they could really use. But with BetterHelp, you can get help at your own time and at your own pace. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. And best of all, if you're not happy with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time for no additional charge. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. And for off-camera listeners, you can get 10% off your first month using the discount code CAMERA. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com camera. Fill out their questionnaire. That'll help them assess your needs. And you can get matched with a counselor that you'll love. That's betterhelp.com camera. And use the code CAMERA for 10% off. And now back to the show. When my kids got to school age, it was sort of an interesting thing to have to relearn the, the, I don't know, the social order of being a parent at a school. And I was curious yeah. if you sort of had to find the line. Because one of the things I love about your show is that you will say anything. And it is funny. And it calls into mind people who have issues with that. Like their own... I don't know the right word, not prudishness, but their but Judgments of what's judgment. appropriate. Sure, sure. Well, I, I think it's interesting because I'm not someone who just says anything I want. But I, if it's comedic, well, that's I'll go I'm, for the joke. Right. And, but going for the joke offends people. Oh. And you would assume like, no, that's funny, so it's okay. But I, you really, it is once your kids go to school, you have to read the room. I'm not a crazy person. I'm not just like going to my daughter's school and just being like, let's fucking heroin it up today. You know what I mean? Like, who brought the drugs? Like, I'm not doing stuff like that. I'm like, hi, how are you? Oh, good to see you. Like, normal. Right, sure. But there are times where people do jokes about things. And if it's for the joke, I will, I'll go there with the joke. And my sensibility, I like... To be edgy, I, I like when you're pushing the envelope and it's not dark or mean, but it can get you in trouble. But I learned quickly. And I always say, if I'm just being like, hi, how are you? I probably don't like you. Right. Not necessarily like you, but I, I'm, not, I'm not putting any effort in. And if I'm like, what's going on with that face? I love you. Yes. Like, you know what I mean? Like, yes. And at school, it's a little bit more, hey, how are you? Yeah, no, call me. And I'll, what time do you need me to pick her up? And blah, blah, blah. It's just a little more, more polite. Now, you know I love Crawford. <laughs> I do know you love Crawford because you immediately took him down for his shirt. Yes. Yeah. So I wonder if you can uh, resist when you're standing at school with a bunch of people that, that aren't comedians and someone lands a joke and you're like, oh, I have a way better punchline than that. Like, is it hard to resist, like, giving the next one? Yeah. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I'll be honest. It is hard. Um... I will say the school that my daughter goes to, there are actually a lot of people with a good sense of humor. So I do feel like I've gotten lucky in that way where there are the people who, when the school play is going on or right after, you can be like, go over and be like, I have notes for your kid. <laughs> like, that was not great. And if I see him act, honestly, I'm going to talk to the school because he brought that thing down. <laughs> so hard. You know what I mean? Who yeah. would find that funny? Yeah. But if I walked up to like, I'm just thinking of like some sweet mom in my class if I was like, listen, Sophie really shit the bed up there. <laughs> Honestly, that was uncomfortable to watch. Like, I know not to do that to that person. Right. You have to read I'm not the a room. crazy person. <laughs> I know. I know how to live in society. 
You know what I like on the show is, is often you show that process. And this is why it's, it's funny that there aren't more women actually who are comedians playing comedians on television because you have this dynamic with Tom Everett Scott who plays your husband where you will throw a punchline out and then you'll try three others. Mm-hmm. And I think usually on TV, the writer picks the best one, that's the one they go with. But it's really cool to see, and I'm assuming and, and asking if that is your process in real life too where are you always sort of like with people you really know well, are you playing with can I can I one up myself? It's old improv training of like, right. can you keep besting it? Can you keep besting it? Can you keep besting it? And I always think it's funny, especially with Tom, um, for my character to just keep needling him one more, one more, because right. he'll sort of take the first one, kind of amused, and then take one more, and then he'll be like, ugh, and then the third one usually he finds delightful. So it's like to watch his sort of process of okay, oh god, oh, fuck, that was fun. You know what I mean? Like. And, and those sometimes are examples. I mean, our scripts are fully scripted. We don't improvise a lot. But with Tom, I will, at the ends of scenes, for sure, to get his real reactions of right. horror or laugh or whatever. Yeah. Because he's I, like, I think I'm working with a maniac. <laughs> right. Yeah. A crazy person. A crazy person who I believe he, he does love and delight in. But, it, it, yeah, it's very outside of his element. Is that a similar dynamic with your husband as well? Is he a straight man? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And is he in the arts at all? Uh, He's a talent agent. Oh, okay. So he understands it, but he's, you know, an economics major. Like, he wears a suit to to, to school every day. He's very young. (laughs) He's 14. Um, Nice, nice. Yeah, he actually is at the same school as my daughter. I'm not sure what's more impressive, that you got a 14-year-old or that he's a talent agent already. I Young I mean, talent. I feel like young. He he specifies. He skews young. He's he he just he knows how to spot young talent. <laughs> Jesus, that's the kind of stuff I wouldn't say. Right. At drop off. That must mean you love me. Exactly. I like that. Yeah. Um, a kindred. You can tell when you have a kindred spirit. Yes. It comes out quickly, even if you're not a comedian. There are funny parents out there. I, there are funny people at my daughter's school who are not in the industry who make me laugh so hard, who are just like, and give a little jab. Yeah. And I think those people are also looking for their kindred spirits. And they find it, and they're like, oh, thank God. I know. I wonder if they're like, I miss my calling. Yeah. Like, she's doing it, I'm doing it. We're vibing. We're vibing. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, folks. Now I want to take a minute away from the conversation to tell you about this week's sponsor, Acuity Scheduling. So what is Acuity? It's the scheduling assistant that works 24-7 behind the scenes to fill your calendar, and it takes hours of work off your plate. From the moment clients book with you, Acuity is there to automatically send booking confirmations with your brand and messaging. It delivers text reminders, lets clients reschedule on their own, and it processes payments so your day-to-day runs smoother even as business gets busier. All you need to do is show up at the right time. Sometimes something comes along, you're like, God, I wish I had that when I was starting out in business. And this is one of those things. I think one of the hardest things for new business owners or small business owners or anyone creative or anyone that is managing their own schedule, the most important thing is maximize the time you have and not let it encroach on your creative time or the time you need to spend with your family or the time you need to spend brainstorming. And we can all get mired in our schedule and we all know how it feels when you miss an appointment or when you double book yourself. And Acuity takes care of all those things. And most of all, it automates the process so you don't have to get personally involved in the day-to-day scheduling. 
You know, you never have to have that back and forth with a client about trying to find a time for a meeting again. Clients can quickly view your real-time availability and self-book their own appointments. They can even reschedule with a click and pay online. That way you can book more clients, get paid on time, and automate and organize your business's day-to-day with the right tools. And with the ability to manage multiple locations and employees, class bookings, private sessions, add-on sales, and even recurring subscriptions, Acuity can adapt to any business. And you can keep your clients prompt with text and email reminders and dramatically reduce appointment no-shows with deposits or full upfront payments. And best of all, you can get notified anytime a new appointment is booked. You can check your schedule right from your phone and even tell Acuity to automatically update the calendars you already use, like Google, Outlook, iCloud, or Office 365, keeping your entire life in sync. So save yourself from the day-to-day drudgery of having to keep up with your clients and your busy schedule by using Acuity Scheduling. And for a limited time only, by listening to this show, you can get 45 days of Acuity Scheduling absolutely free, no credit card required, by going to acuityscheduling.com slash camera. That's 45 free days by going to acuityscheduling.com slash camera. Acuity is a game changer. So what are you waiting for? Streamline your schedule, make your clients happy, and make your life easier. That's acuityscheduling.com slash camera. Now back to the show. Your mom is depicted mm-hmm. in the show, your uh-huh. husband, your daughter. Yeah. I guess it just makes me wonder about your upbringing mm-hmm. and if you knew from a young age you were funny or if someone in your family was funny. Um, I didn't necessarily grow up in a super funny family. My mom is surprisingly funny. She's this very, you know, 50s, grew up in the 50s, straight-laced woman with a little bit of a deviant sense of humor if you get to know her, but she looks like this cute, you know, innocent little lady, but she gives, like, dirty gifts at Christmas and, like, giggles in the back. Really? Yeah, yeah. And she does listen to Howard Stern, and she does joke about um, my husband's sperm from time to time. Like, and then she giggles about it, and she's so cute. But I wasn't brought up, like, I know a lot of my comedian friends were like, I, comedy was in my life from the beginning. My dad listened to Richard Pryor, and my this and that. Yeah. I was not exposed to, like, big comedians growing up. I knew I was funny. How did you know you were funny? Because people would laugh when I did stuff, but I didn't know why. Do you remember an early, early thing where you got a laugh and you're like, huh? Yeah. We got a video camera when I was younger, and I would do fake commercials from what was on TV. I did, like, a spoof of a perfume commercial at, like, eight and knew enough of what the real version was to then how to take it down and right. make fun of how serious they were trying to be. And so I think it was like some fake name. Like, it probably wasn't farts, but like the equivalent of like, you got to try farts. He won't be able to resist farts. You know what I mean? Like something like that. Like stupid. And then I was really into musical theater, musical okay. comedy. And that's how I really first started in comedy. Um, I loved I Love Lucy. I loved um, Betty White, and I loved Mary Tyler Moore, and I loved old game shows. I was a big game show watcher, so I'd watch, like, old match game episodes with, like, Brett and um, Fanny Flagg and, like, all these old broads. You know, the first comedian I ever clocked was uh, Paul Lind in Hollywood Squares, that he always had the funny answer first before the real answer. You know who mine is that is Charles Nelson Reilly. If you go back and you watch... um, uh, not Hollywood Squares, the other one, Match Game. Yeah. He is, because I only knew him sort of as a joke a little bit right, later. The voice. The voice and, and the, the thing. 
He's so smart and so quick and so funny. And so was Richard Dawson. If you watch, I'm obsessed with watching the old Match Game episodes. Really? But that was like, I wasn't listening to the cool like Steve Martin and Eddie Murphy and Richard Pryor and like all that. I was going more old school and musical theater. TV. All day long. <laughs> I still will watch a game show. I'll watch the shit out of a game show. Really? And um, the, and I got in through musical theater. And then, and I hate saying this, but it was my first couple boyfriends that I dated who were all really funny. And that's when I knew I was really funny. Charles Nelson Riley and who else? <laughs> it was Charles Nelson Riley. Yeah. And um, it was Rich Little. Really? <laughs> yeah. All those boys. That's where you learned all your impressions. Nah, 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 nah. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> you had a great Richard Nixon when you were in like oh, third grade. God, so dating solid. Rich Little. <laughs> so solid. Um, <laughs> but my first couple boyfriends, I was always attracted to funny guys. Yeah. And then I was like funny. And they were like, fuck, you're funny. Like, you're funnier than I am. And then that. And then they'd break up with you. And they'd break up with me. Yeah. No, they didn't. But, um, but that, I remember being like, there weren't a lot of funny girls that I knew right. in my high school. But the people I knew that were funnier were guys. And then I was like, oh, I'm able to be as funny as they are. And that is one thing that has come out in my writer's room of me realizing that I feel complimented when somebody says, you're such a dude. And for so many years, I took that as like, a, I have four brothers. Yeah, I'm, I'm whatever. And in the past couple of years, doing my own show and being in my writer's room, I'm like, why do I find that to be more of a compliment that if someone was like, you're very feminine, I'm like, Boof, barf. <laughs> and I'm like, no, no, that's not actually, you got to think about that. And I've really tried to change that weird thing in my head of go, no, I mean, it's not an insult to be called a man, but you can also just be like, you're a funny fucking lady. Yeah, yeah. And that's okay. And you're feminine and funny. And that, those don't have to be at odds with each other. And I primarily have been treated with a decent amount of respect as a woman in comedy my whole career. Um, I think part of that's been luck. I will say the difference, though, is that I was one of a handful. And now there's so many, which is fantastic. And, And also in the pitching process, it used to be when I would pitch a show and people were interested in buying it, I would get from big places going, we love it. We have one, we have one other female-centered show. We need to see how that one does. That one it comes out three weeks from now. Can you give us seven weeks to see how that one female show goes? Right. And it was like... Because that's the slot for the... And it's like, do you do that with... We have this one male show coming out in a couple weeks. We need to see how that male show... Right. Turns out... We don't know if it's going to go. We don't know if it's going to go. So I, we can't take on another guy <laughs> until we know uh, how that one guy's going to go. Yeah. Like it, Those were the times where I was just like, are you fucking kidding me? Still? I thought we'd move past this. Um, I I think maybe because I was I was such a like aggressive, like I had four brothers. Right. I was never... I'm not a sensitive person. My comedy really doesn't come from a darkness, and I don't know what it is um i like edgy but i i don't like mean and i don't like dark and which is a hard place in comedy i will be honest to write a tv show or just to 
keep your voice that way. It's really easy to be like, fuck everyone and fuck this. And Yeah, do you sometimes wonder, like, why am I not darker? Uh-huh. You do? I, 100%. There were a lot of times where I was like, am I actually a real comedian? Because I don't have demons. Like, I have my things that bother me, but they're so minor and so not real demons that I was like, maybe I'm not a true comedian. Like, where is my inspiration coming from? And my show has really been this experience little bit of an experiment of me going, I do have edge and I do push the envelope, but is there a way to do that without being a monster? And where the characters pretty much all actually love each other, but they don't ever talk about that. There's not schmaltzy heart scenes, but in general, everyone likes each other on my show. Can you do that and make an edgy show that still has people going, oh shit, yeah. No, I think you have done that. I think that's what I respond to. And there is there is stuff hidden in there, mm-hmm. I think, that, like, I always wonder, what is the source of comedy? Is comedy sometimes an out for intimacy? Like, when it, things get a little too... Uh, for me, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's that's something that's interesting to explore, because it's not like you don't want intimacy, but for some reason, right in that moment, you're like, I'm not sensitive. You wear that like a badge. Totally. And nothing's going to make me sensitive. And if I am sensitive, I failed. Or if I'm sensitive, it's going to be on my terms and I'll do it. <laughs> I'll, I'll wrap it up in humor. Yeah. But especially as a fe- you know, female com- comedian, when I was especially coming up, there was no room for being sensitive. Right. Well, I, that makes me wonder about your sense of justice when you're in a room with yeah. five or six male comedians and they're saying certain things and whatever they're saying may not be directed towards you. And, and you have their respect and you're funny and you're one of the guys. But do you ever do you ever feel that justice sense to like stand up for whatever the source? I've always been that person. If I heard guy friends and if they were like saying shit about a woman, I'd be like, what are you saying? Listen to yourself right now. And then I would be like, that's insanity. And I would call them out from early on. I had no problem calling people out. I had a freakish level of confidence at a young age that served me well, I think, but also slightly disturbing. Where where do you think that came from? I think my family, for one. And then I went to an all-girls school here in Los Angeles. I went to Westlake right before it became Harvard-Westlake. And that school was like one of the first women's studies feminist programs. For whatever reason, I felt like, yeah, I fucking the shit. Like I was like, Why wouldn't you want to hear what I have to say? Like, I had a freakishly high level of confidence. And, like, you can't bully me as a woman. I never thought, like, as a woman I had to um, be lesser than ever. You know, it's funny. I'm raising daughters, and they go to a school that has those same philosophies in place. and, And you do wonder if that comes out looking like the entitled side or the confidence and the and the inner strength thing. You You hope number two. Yeah. Yeah. This is one time where number two is preferable to number one. Right. Well, also some other times. You know what I mean? It depends on how the night is gone. Um, No, this is is fascinating, though, because I I think that, you know, uh, what I hear you saying is that you came into this world that's really, really hard, but for some weird reason, the school that wasn't an art school, it prepared you for it. I was very academic. I was really nerdy. I was pre lot Cornell. I was an extremely good student. I was that student that was like, I have an B plus, A minus? Well, no, 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 no. Now, was that a parental thing? Was that yeah, it started parental, be... but also it sort of became 
for better or for worse, and I will tell you it is better and worse in my life now, is I don't like to live in the B plus. I spend a lot of energy going to the A minus to the A. And that's where it, I make life way harder for myself because I, I, I feel like I know I can live there and I know I can make something better and I push myself there, but there's a part of me that sometimes is like, can't you just be okay with, the B plus yeah. in this aspect of your life. Well, it kind of makes me question that sensitivity comment too, because I know someone very well that uh, sometimes covers things up with humor, mm-hmm. and yet it's almost more revealing. It's 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 their form of intimacy. Do you know yeah. what I mean? And it's kind of a beautiful thing when you know it. But yeah. it's a different way of connecting with people. Have and you thought about yeah, that? Yeah, and I will say that is something we brought up in the room because I feel like sometimes my character can turn into caricature when she isn't able to be vulnerable around other people. And I really hold my ground and I go, I have that side of me of joking around. I'm extremely open and vulnerable with my daughter, with my husband, with my close friends. And it's easy to paint a character like my character that does sort of fall into comedic for vulnerable side to make that very one note. And we really work hard on the show to make sure that it is clear that I'm not, I'm not closed off. I am vulnerable. I am a good parent and that I do have that balance. Cause I truly do think I have the balance in real life. I'm not always on. I really am not. And I would say most of the day I'm not on. Are there days when you just don't feel funny and you have to like find it? Cause I think when you're really vibing and it's happening, it's almost like you you can't put together why it happens and when it happens. It's like chemistry. It's chemistry. You know, I've done this a long time between like Groundlings and where you have to come up with a new show every week. And it is comedy boot camp. And you wake up, you have your show on a Sunday, and then you have to write a whole new show by Wednesday to pitch and do all this stuff. And you're like, I've got nothing. I've got nothing. And that boot camp showed me that even when you've got nothing, you got to write something got something. That's where the confidence thing is amazing because when you get to that I got nothing thing, uh-huh. it can destroy you if you let it. And I'll tell you between season one and season two, I had, I was like, guys, I said everything I wanted to say in season one. I'm terrified to do season two because I don't want to force it. Was it, was it that thing when you found out you were coming back? It was, oh no. A little. <laughs> Not oh yay. Well, it was a combo because it was like, yay, people have it. But then I was like, I, that's the stuff I wanted to say. And I will tell you, I had the same panic after season two. Because you're right there right now. You're about to go start. And I'll tell you something that I did before I agreed to do season three, which a lot of people don't know about, is I really was like, I, in general, think shows go on too long. And I was like, I want to make sure we're not treading on the same territory. I don't want my character to become a caricature, which I think a lot of single point of view shows can become monsters and just become not the nuanced levels that we like. So I asked the network, I asked True TV to let me do an exploratory month-long writer's room and to pay for that. And at the end of it, Joey and I will see if we think we have enough to agree to do a season three. And we battled a little bit and they agreed to do it and we did the room and then we said yes. Really? And I think this is the first example I've ever heard of a show that's already on the air having an exploratory room in between seasons. Well, clearly you make up the rules as you go along. <laughs> it's working out. I do make up the rules as I go along. Sometimes it does not work out. Hey folks, let's take a little break from the conversation so I can tell you about this week's sponsor, The Real Real. 
We all love a deal. And I think when you get a deal on something that's truly a work of art or truly something of lasting value, it's that much better. Well, that's why The Real Real came to be in existence. You can own iconic luxury items at unreal values with The Real Real, the leading reseller of authenticated luxury consignment from top designers. You can shop from designers like Louis Vuitton, Gucci, Rolex, Cartier, and hundreds more at up to 90% off retail. New arrivals come in daily, and every single item is authenticated by The Real Real's team of experts. In fact, The Real Real employs over 100 brand authenticators, gemologists, horologists, I don't even know what a horologist is, and art curators from around the globe who inspect thousands of items each day to ensure that every item is 100% expert authenticated. If someone will send me an email and tell me what a horologist is, I would really appreciate it, by the way. You can shop and consign women's and men's luxury fashion as well with fine jewelry, watches, art, and home goods. And you can shop online or visit one of their original stores in Soho or West Hollywood or their newest location at 870 Madison Avenue in New York. You may also visit one of their luxury consignment offices in Chicago, Dallas, Miami, San Francisco, and Washington, D.C. In-store, new customers receive an automatic $25 off at checkout. That's a pretty good deal. But the greatest thing about The Real Real is browsing through all the amazing items they have on the site. It's like a history lesson to go through and see the finest fashion and jewelry and watches and art and items for your home. And best of all, these things are timeless classics that they sell on the site. So it's not like you're buying someone's used junk. You're buying a piece of history and you're getting this greatly reduced price to own a great designer piece. So don't take it from me. Just go to therealreal.com and start browsing around and you'll look at the clock and you'll be like, oh my God, an hour went by and I didn't even notice. So with The Real Real, you can shop in-store, online, or you can download the app. And for listeners of this show, you can get 20% off select items with the promo code REAL. That's therealreal.com, promo code REAL, for 20% off select items. So check it out. Now back to the show. I read a little bit about you, and the thing that I didn't know is that you wrote seven complete pilots that got sold and not one of them was made mm -hmm. before yeah i'm sorry i'm sorry started mm -hmm. to me to finally sell this show to have it be about you to have it your voice to have it be successful to have netflix pick it up after two seasons and you no longer have to run that gauntlet i'm so surprised you're like can can we sign up for 10 seasons of this right now like i i think in your position i would be so relieved to not have to have that that roller coaster of rejection and and starting over and in uncertainty. Yeah, that doesn't occur to me. I just sit there and I go, I just want to make sure that the show stays the quality that people have come to like and that I expect from myself. And it's really hard. And I also do panic about it. And I know that I have to have my panic about like, this is, we don't have anything more or whatever. And that's part of my process. For whatever reason, to me, it's like when it's not ready, when it's done, it's going to be done. And then I'll have to get back out there and start again. And yeah. Or the talent agent husband's going to have to keep finding that young talent. Get that young talent. Yeah. Yeah. Sign them up to long-term contracts. <laughs> yeah. I mean, at least through the rest of their school year. Yeah. That they're both in. Because <laughs> he's 14. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, I know. I don't have that in me. I have the, per, you know, the... It's got to be the product. You're the, the B-plus isn't good enough person. Yeah, and if we're going to start getting in B-plus territory, then i got to go try to get an A doing something else. 
How did that mentality apply around the fifth pilot that you wrote and it sold and didn't get made? Like, did you ever get to the point where this wasn't happening, where you started to question whether or not you had it? Oh, 100%. You yeah, did? Yeah, 100%. Because, you know, it was a weird position because I had had a bunch of momentum as an actor and beginning writer-producer uh, right after Dog Bites Anne and Step Brothers right. and a couple other things. And I then had my daughter. I got pregnant and was basically had to pull out of the business for two years, you know, almost two years. And for whatever reason, when I was back to getting in, it was a little bit like, oh, yeah, her. Why didn't she get it? You know, and suddenly I was a little bit of old news. And I was a mom, which is not as, like, cool and fun to a lot of people in the world. But I still was booking a pilot as an actor every year, and then I was pitching and selling every season. But the pilots weren't going, and the shows weren't going, so I was like, I was a very successful failure that nobody had any idea that actually stuff was going okay, but on the outside, it just looked like, woof, what happened to her? Which was a bummer and hard. It looked like I had just, like, a little bit fallen off the face of the earth, even though I was, like, scrambling and working my butt off. Yeah. And it was just heartbreak after heartbreak of putting your all into a project, getting good notes, people loving the scripts, and then they still weren't going. And it was like being a darling in the world, but then not ever, you know... It's the, always the bridesmaid, never the bride. Yeah, kind of a what thing. was the inner dialogue on that with yourself? It started to get kind of like, ah, wow, it looked like I was going to make my dreams come true and actually have the career that I worked really hard at for a long time. And now maybe it's not. And now maybe I'm going to maybe hopefully keep working on a show here or there. And that's my career. And okay, how do I regroup? And it was right around 40. I went, I'm going to reinvent how I'm doing this. How, why did I get into this industry in the first place? It wasn't to get into development hell. I'm going to shoot a pilot presentation that's going to show exactly what I want this show to be. I'm going to say yes to things that don't really pay, but are people that I want to work with. And I did um, this show called The Hot Wives of Orlando and The Hot Wives yeah. of Las Vegas. Then I got episodes. And I had to shoot in London for both of those. And I probably would have said no. But I was like, no, we're going to make this work because it's a really cool role. And I'm going to take my family to London. And that's going to be what it happens. And then Veep happened. And then I was selling my show. Like, I don't know. I sort of had a mental shift. And for whatever reason, stuff started, like, falling in line. And then... I sort of manifested this pilot presentation. So to be clear, yeah. you went out and shot half a pilot. And most of that's in the actual pilot. Really? So I got my wonderful friends, Judy Greer and Jason Mansukis. I wrote blind letters to June Squibb and Judith Light. was like, I'm doing this pilot presentation. I'm trying to show an actual nuanced, funny, edgy version of a woman who is a mom, but is also a lot of other things. And here's the script. They both were like, we're in for no money. I'd never met those two women. And then my friends obviously came in and did it. And Jessica Elbaum at Gary Sanchez is my friend, and we produced it. And we all just, like, we shot it at my house. The whole party in season one is at my old house, really? that front yard. You had to sell that thing because people were just People like, were clamoring yeah. to get a piece of it. <laughs> um, and we, we just, she, I just she, uh, literally, like, willed it to happen. And now, did you decide to do that because 
this was the most personal, best script you ever written, or you were just like, I have to change Because I was like, when I write, I don't write big joke, pa- joke on the page. I like it to be coming really from the actors and who what they originally bring. And also, I was like, these are some funny fucking stories that I have. I knew that, like, the anal porn star was super funny. I knew the asshole lesbians was funny. I knew some stuff going on with my dad was funny. I knew the, the funny but in dark way was the um, racist daughter and my jalapeno hands. Like, I knew I had stuff that I told at parties or I told a little bit on stage that I was like, I know these are funny. Um, but I need to tell them the exact way that I want to tell them. What do you think was not translating on the page that you had to show? Tone, tone, tone and pace and that sort of female character. People couldn't really understand what I meant by by a nuanced character of a happy marriage, but there's edge, that it's, but it's not dark, but it pushes the envelope. And it really is just, I have a specific voice, you know. It's the same reason that Larry David, you know, Curb Your Enthusiasm started off as that documentary. And, you know, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia was a presentation they did. Because these don't, like, you can't figure out what they are because they all have the same logline. Person getting through life, dealing with what life hands them. All you can do is prove the execution. And almost all these single point of view shows needed either something that was shot ahead of time or needed a huge champion behind them, like a Judd Apatow or someone who's vouching for them and just going, you're going to make this. Or a bad time slot, and it's like, uh, give it a shot. Give it a shot. Like Seinfeld. Like Seinfeld. Right. Yeah. What's fascinating... They're not sexy loglines, is my point, and it only is execution. So interesting, because what I hear you saying is that if you're going to make something original, you can't get people on board with it. You have to show them. I am such a proponent now of pilot presentations. I yeah. really think, and not for every project needs it, but if you're a performer, writer, performer, who the whole point of what the show is going to live or die on is your personality and yeah. how you say things and how you look at people and your reaction to things, you can't write that on a page. Because yeah. if you're trying to write, you know, like, let's just say my favorite scene out of season one and two is when um, Mike tries to, in sake of working on their marriage, rape her. Right. Um, I think it's the only scene that has heart on our show. It's the only scene I allowed to have heart because I was like, it's being undercut by such a non-heart situation. And that's the only time where I think I say I love you to my husband in two seasons is because he went so out of his comfort zone to attack me in such an insane way. And he's so mortified. But like that scene, if you tried to read that on the page, would be insane. You would not know how funny it was. And you wouldn't also know how actually touching it was. It would literally be, did our therapist ask you to rate me? Well, he said people like, like it would seem insane. Right. But it's my favorite scene. That's what it is. True art is so personal that if you don't execute it, it cannot be communicated. It's like, we're not comparing, this is an odd thing, but yeah. take Picasso's Guernica or something. You can't I tell get compared people to that about lot. it. You gotta go look at it. Of course, if you tried to describe that and had someone else, not even Picasso describing it, 
and trying to pitch it, you'd have no idea what it was until you just saw it. Can you imagine the notes on that? <laughs> can, can we get some red in there? Of course. I mean, but all of that would be notes. Like, what is that? That's not even a real figure. Like, right. how is this war? Like, what are you talking about? Like, it would be awful. Um, I'll go one nerdier step, yeah. if you don't mind. Because I have a thing about a joke, too. Because I feel like a joke has an entire, like, life process to it. That I think one issue in comedy is that often one person's not able to stick with the joke through all the processes it needs to go to. There's writing a joke. Uh Then there's getting it on set, directing the joke, performing the joke. So that's now the second part. Often those are two different or three different people. Then editor. And that's where the joke really lives. That's right. And you've got multiple editors, you've got producers, you've got studios, you've got all these people coming in. So if the original writer just hands off a joke and then say that original director then hands off that joke and doesn't get to edit it, or the performer is the writer, and like there's so many places for that joke to lose the DNA of what that joke is. And I really believe the most successful comedies are when there is one person it's a lot of work for that person, I'll tell you. Following that joke from beginning to end. You say that, and I realize that this is why the greatest humor is often found in stand-up specials because they, the writer is the performer, mm-hmm. is the editor, is the director. Yes. And it's surprising to me that you didn't choose stand-up. Now I that I'm talking stand-up. to you. Yeah, I love stand-up, and if I—that's the one thing. If I had all the time in the world and I wasn't crazed doing what I do and that I didn't have a family and can't be home I mean can't be out five nights a week Yeah. stand up I did after Groundlings for a brief period of time and I loved it and then I started working too much and wasn't able to work all day and then go out at night and right. then got married and he works all day like it just whatever and then had a child and then start with I love stand up because it was different than Groundlings because it is all you you get to control it all and it sounds and I like, sound like you're a control fine. Freak. No, but it sounds like you're fine with living and dying by that. Yes. And, and a lot of people probably aren't. They probably like the safety of the group. And if something fails, it's, well, yeah. it wasn't me. And I don't do my show alone. I've got tons of support, and especially Joey Slayman, who's my other side, and we go through it all together. But there is, I mean, a reason why, like, a Mel Brooks is a Mel Brooks, because he's involved in every portion of it. But it's something that happens with jokes all the time. And not every joke is as precious, but some of them you're like, the same person has to shepherd it all the way through for it to really be what it was meant to be. But it's hard to be the person in doing everything. It is exhausting. You are a joke shepherd. I'm a joke shepherd. Yeah. I have these two, I call it my Cornell side and then my Carney side. And they just battle in me and have for my whole life. Yeah, you know, it's interesting when you say, I'm not a control freak. I do feel like there are certain people that it's not about being a control freak. Mm -hmm. It's that it is the most efficient way to get the, like, I don't think you can call an artist a control freak because. When it's your project, that's your job. That's what's required to make. That's what does frustrate me is sometimes I'm like, yeah, we are very particular, but it's like you have to be because we're making it out. In the rest of my life, my husband wishes I was a control freak or a neat freak or anything. OCD. He's like, can you have a touch of OCD, please? (laughs) But when I've taken on a project and it's going to be something that I give, I give 
everything to it. Yeah. You know, I love talking to you. I think that Thank you. I, I think that what you're doing is really great high level humor. It's not it's not just simple episodic comedy and, and we it's try really I really hard. connect. I love it. And I think the only thing I wonder about is how are you managing to do this and raise a child and like I, I do think that's the weird tough thing for women because I'm super involved in my kids' lives, and I always have been. But there's a difference. Mm-hmm. There's There will always be a difference that's just cellularly... Mommy. Yes. And I wonder how you sort of make those two worlds work, and, and if, if that's like Cornell and Carney or some version of that. It is. It's, it is a battle. I would love to say, like, yeah, it's easy. We figured it out. Um, it's hard, and I'd be lying if it didn't take a toll on me and my husband especially um i my daughter feels a little bit but i all my energy goes to my show and not allowing my daughter to feel the emptiness so it really is i don't see friends i don't go out i do nothing for that 13 months except be with my daughter or be at the show i do a lot of things which i'm hoping other people will start picking up on um i keep my writer's room hours post drop off and then we, I really try to wrap everybody by 5.30 or 6 every night. So they're home for, you know, dinner and homework and all of that. Do I have to then go back to work at 9.30? I do. But yeah. it's my show. And I know this is a finite amount of time when I'm doing this in my life. But it is hard. Um, but I also go, it's finite. It's a finite amount of time. And I'm still there. You know what I mean? Like, I am still doing homework with her, and I'm still going to the market, and it kills me. It, it, I almost die every season. I'm not going to lie. This is not easy. I become a shell of a human being at the end. But it's important to me. I take parenting super seriously, and I love being a parent, and I love hanging out with my child. So, you know, I don't plan anything on a Saturday or Sunday. Like, I work on Sundays after a certain point, but, like, we just, I don't do anything else. I see no one else except my daughter and my husband and my work. For a year. Is it worth it? Yeah, it is. I totally agree. I feel like when you get the chance to share job. your unique take on the world and to bring your entire family into the stories, it's a it's, dream. It's I mean, the it's most fulfilling thing. I mean, it is your version of stand up, really. It is. It's my, because I was like, ooh, I'd love to do a one woman show. I saw Mike Birbiglia's show, the new yeah. one on Broadway, which was fucking awesome, which I think is coming to LA soon. Um, and I was like, I want to do that. And then I, I, oh, I was there with Tom Everett Scott, actually, because we were in New York doing some sort of press thing. So we went and saw the show. And he was like, you are doing that. Yes, you are doing that. With our show. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I guess I have nothing left. Yeah, you're right. I, w- I would have nothing to say. People would be like, you've already done this. Um, so it is kind of like my one-woman yeah. show with a lot of help from a lot of other people. Yeah. Well, thank you for doing this. Thank you. Very um, much. This has been really fun. I'm Uh, a fan of your show, and I I like watching people I don't know and people I know come on it because I always learn something new about even the people that I think I know really well. Thank you for that. Yeah, it's really really a special show. Well, please keep doing your show because I love it very much, (laughs) and your daughter will be fine. (laughs) Okay. She's she's good. She's 10. She's 10. Yeah. She's she's cooked. Yeah. Oh, God. So not. It's true, Um, though, probably. Uh, oh, the drama, though. Everything's starting. I mean, it's all. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's all. It's all happening. Um, I am going to keep doing my show. I love my show. I just panic once in a while. Yeah, I do. That's my process. Yeah. Yeah. 
That was pretty vulnerable. Yeah. Pretty intimate. I'm telling you, I am. You are sensitive. I am not. I'm not afraid to say that I'm not one of those comedians who's always on and never vulnerable. Yeah. I will vulnerable my face off for you. I think you have today. Thanks for doing this. Thank you for having me. Hey folks, that's our show. I really enjoyed talking to Andrea. She makes me laugh and it was so nice to meet her in person and find out that her sense of humor is the same in real life as it is on the show. If you haven't seen I'm Sorry, what are you waiting for? It's available both on True TV and Netflix. So dive in and get to know Andrea Savage like I did. You can also find her on Veep, on Episodes, which was a Showtime series a while back, and Man Bites Dog. You can also check out her upcoming brand new podcast, Andrea Savage, a grown-up woman, hashtag buttholes. That tells you everything you need to know to get started. And I'll be tuning into that podcast every week. So if you don't know this talented and funny woman, I urge you to check her out. I also urge you to check out offcamera.com because you can find out a whole lot more about us there. We are also, in addition to being a podcast, a TV show. And we air every Monday night and several times throughout the week on DirecTV's Audience Network and also on AT&T U-verse. And if you don't have DirecTV, you can also get our television subscription package. And that way you can see every one of our 200 plus episodes all conveniently archived for you on our website. And it's a great deal for just $4.99 a month. You can have access to every show to watch on any device as many times as you want, all in glorious black and white. And it's a great way to take a deep dive into the show and check out the archive and see what you've been hearing. Also, if you're loving the podcast and you have not yet subscribed, take a minute, go to iTunes and subscribe to the show. That way you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, leave us a rating and a review because that helps other people find the show. You can also tune in to us on social media. We are Off Camera Show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And I am Sam Jones on Twitter and Sam Jones Pictures on Instagram. And I will tell you that lately my daughter has been hanging around taking behind the scenes pictures of the show. So check out my Instagram and you'll see sort of the behind the scenes of what happens here. And in addition, you can also see the portraits that I take of each guest that I have on. It's a great way to get connected with the show. And also you can use social media to tell other people about us, which I would greatly appreciate. So if you haven't yet, take a minute, compose a tweet, take a picture and tell the world about off camera and why you love it. That's also a great way to suggest a guest or just give us some comments about the show. We love hearing from listeners, and I know that we have a lot of artists and actors and musicians and directors and photographers that listen in, and it's very nice to be part of this community of people who are finding their unique creative path and maybe getting some advice from this show or just enjoying the parallel experiences and finding out that we all have a lot in common in this crazy entertainment business. I want to thank everybody that helps us make this show each week. Crawford Shippey, Nathan Shields, Michaela Galvin, Sasha Snow, and Kara Johnson. The show is a lot of work. It has a lot of moving parts, and I could not do it without all of these fine people who care very much about the show. And mostly thank you to you for tuning in each week and for letting me sit down in the room and have these conversations with these iconic artists. I feel very lucky that I get to do this for a living. And most importantly, be sure to join me next time when I sit down with comedian, host, writer, director, and podcaster, Scott Ackerman.
with Between Two Ferns, I have a pretty pre-planned speech like, hey, I don't know if you've ever seen the show before. And if they haven't, I'll say, okay, so Zach has a bunch of questions he's going to ask you. We're not going to show them to you beforehand. And this is the part where I sort of start to gear up and I say, um, but the questions can be kind of mean-spirited, but it's all in good fun. We don't actually feel this way. They're just mean to be mean, <laughs> you know? And the people who know the show, like Keanu Reeves, for instance, I started in on the speech. I was like, so the questions can be a little mean. And he cut me off and he goes, uh, yeah, that's why I'm here. It's no exaggeration to say that Scott was an early adopter of the comedy podcast genre because he practically invented it. His interview meets improv show Comedy Bang Bang is in its 10th year and shows no signs of slowing down. Scott continues to introduce, nurture, and legitimize new talent on the show, not dissimilar to Johnny Carson anointing new comics after giving them a slot on The Tonight Show. Scott is also at least half responsible for the YouTube series Between Two Ferns. Along with Zach Galifianakis, Scott created the viral segments in which Zach interviews, insults, and makes very uncomfortable some of the biggest names in entertainment. And now Scott has directed the feature-length Between Two Ferns movie, which might just break the internet. See you next time off camera.